Welcome back to a Clubfoot Mom podcast. I'm your host and fellow Clubfoot Mom, Maureen Hoff. This episode is a bit different from my other episodes because it features someone outside of the Clubfoot community, but whose story and work that I have resonated so deeply with that I just had to bring her on to share with all of you. Julie Rose is the mother of two and co-chair of the Family-Centered Care Advisory Council at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. That hospital may sound familiar because it is the same hospital that previous guest, Dr. Maurice Bouchard, is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at. I first heard Julie's story on the podcast episode, Are the Parents All Right? on the Sick Kids First podcast. I started listening to the episode and immediately started to take notes on everything. I then admittedly and totally fangirled and decided to contact Julie to tell her how much her story and the work she's doing resonated with me and how vitally important I think it is. Throughout the episode and hearing Julie's story, I couldn't help but think that this is exactly what clubfoot treatment needs. It needs to be more family-centered care, providing support for not just the patient that the doctor is treating, but the family that is supporting that child. I will let Julie tell her story and explain more about the work that she does, and then we'll discuss how we think this concept needs to be expanded throughout pediatric care, including clubfoot treatment. I'm so grateful that Julie agreed to be a guest and cannot wait to jump into this conversation. So hi, Julie. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I um, am really actually excited to branch out a little and just talk about the family-centered care aspect. Yeah, I'm super excited. I The second I started listening to that podcast, I was like, it was just like light bulbs because it's kind of like you were saying everything that I feel on the inside. <laughs> and I was like, this is it. That's like, that's what I'm talking about. This is where I think um, not just clubfoot treatment, but like so much pediatric care needs to move forward because when you're treating a pediatric, a child, you're really cheating the whole family. And I think that sometimes that gets lost in the care aspect of it. So I was just so enthralled and I'm so happy that you were willing to come on and talk to us today. Absolutely. I think that you're, you're bang on like the family caregiver world, um, is such a a lost piece Mm -hmm. of, of treating the patient. So it's a, it's a whole new world. I mean, it's something that, you know, isn't new and it's been actively improving with many different hospitals and facilities, but everyone can do better and we can all do better. I think that's the case for so many things. It's just in it's improvement on what is, and it's not a critique. You know, sometimes I feel like maybe I'm being too critical, but it's more of, it's like, how can we move forward? How can we help? How can we continue to improve and to push that to grow so that we are helping more people? So that's how I try to frame it in my mind instead of, acting like I'm being critical. (laughs) I think you're, I think you're bang on. Yeah. (laughs) And it's also finding, um, the physicians and the clinicians and the the staff within the hospitals or within the clinics who have the same mindset. I think that's, that's a big part of it. Awesome. Why don't we just start with you telling us a bit about your story and the current work you are doing? 
Yeah. So I have a son who is six years old and he was diagnosed quite early on. I mean, from birth with intestinal failure. So his gut just simply doesn't function the way that ours would. And it requires him to get his hydration and his nutrition through a central line that goes into his heart. Mm -hmm. Um, He also has a a G-tube in his tummy to help with you know, um, venting out the, the food that he does eat orally, because in our case, um, Owen is his name. Mm-hmm. He is a very typical kid in many ways. It's just his gut does not function. And with his gut not functioning, it has resulted in months, years actually within the hospital and, mm-hmm. um, an insane amount of support both in hospital and at home. So we, um, you know, we live the medical life. It's, it's who we are. It's part of our family. It's, it's who our son is. It is just a, um, a whole different world than what we're used to after having, you know, a very typical child, Zoe, uh, who was born two years before him. So that in itself has translated into a lot of advocacy and a lot of work with families and caregivers in specific, because for, you know, the last six years up until actually probably I'd say this week, Owen hasn't had his own voice and he hasn't been able to, you know, talk for himself and advocate for himself in so many different ways. Um, I say this week because he just did his first talk ever about himself and his body. Aww. So it's pretty impressive. Amazing. Yeah. But, um, but it, it translated really, really soon after he was born. Well, I was living in the hospital, getting involved with sick kids and uh, their family advisory network as well as doing more for different committees that resonated with our family and, and his needs. Wow. I think that's a big piece that I've learned through my experience too, is that advocacy piece. I think sometimes parents, I know for me, I didn't, that's not in my nature. The advocating piece always felt like in my mind before I had her with my older two that are typical, I was like advocating was like synonymous with conflict. Like I was going to be conflictual. Right. And I avoid conflict at all costs. So re reworking that for myself and moving forward of like, okay, but I have to be an advocate. Cause like my child doesn't even like, cannot communicate whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And express their wants and needs. And I think for parents, it's, it's a hard role. It's not a role that we expect to step into. Absolutely. I'd say, um, I'm okay with Mm -hmm. conflict. I don't enjoy conflict. I don't know a lot of people that do, but I'm okay to push the boundaries a little Mm -hmm. bit. And when we were kind of thrown into Owen's life, when he was born, things were very scary. And for me, it was also a way to, control is not the right word, but kind of control our environment in the hospital and ask questions and be able to feel confident. You know, when the nurses and the doctors left the room at times, it's terrifying and you want them to stand there next to you. But I needed to know that they could leave the room. And I knew what every tube meant. I knew what every number on the screen meant. I knew when they were high, when they were low, and I knew what, um, what needed to be done. And when we needed to uh, you know, beg for help if necessary. And that came pretty quick. It, it was one of those things where I was not going to sit back and, you know, lay on the couch slash chair slash bed every single night, watching him go to sleep with other people doing everything to him. I, I wanted to be bedside. I wanted to be highly involved. And um, if it didn't feel right, I needed to understand why. 
So I think the, the tricky part with advocacy is you're exhausted. You're done. You're, you're so out of the realm of normal and you are in a position that is, is horrific in most cases. The last thing you're going to do is start understanding and asking questions and using your brain in those moments. Right. Um, so it took time for sure, but I was also incredibly lucky to have a team that was working with us and, and on Owen as this, as his physicians and clinicians um, who were patient and who were answering questions and who recognized that this was a really, really hard time for us. And the way that my husband processes him and information is different than the way I process it. So um, there's a lot of people that don't have that. There's a lot of people that don't have, you know, people standing next to them, guiding them. There's a lot of people that don't have their own voice because they're just too scared or they're just too exhausted. Mm -hmm. And this was the start of something, you know, really big for me as a person and for me to be able to expand in a really crappy time. Mm -hmm. So tell us about kind of what your current role is. What are you doing now? And how did that come from what your experiences are? Mm -hmm. Are yeah. and were. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Currently are still. Um, so it started small. I started, you know, sitting on a brand new advisory committee as a parent who my main goal and our main goal as parents at that table were to sit and just simply provide feedback to the, the team that was running the complex care division at, at, um, this, at SickKids at the hospital. And our role was pretty engaging and it felt really nice to, you know, sit there and I would go up in my pajamas and slippers from Owen's room to a higher floor in the hospital, sit around a boardroom table for an hour. And I felt like I was actually contributing and understanding. And I was then around more families who had kind of the same passion and the same goals, but we all didn't, um, you know, have it in us to do more. It was kind of what we could do. And we were doing our best at that time. So that role transitioned into, you know, a second advisory table and then a third advisory table. And then understanding that he, he worked with a lot of teams in the hospital and, you know, they work very differently. And, and there are silos that happen all throughout every hospital. And how can we coordinate that a little bit better for families and how can we make it better for the patient? So that stream of sort of work came hand in hand with each other. And one thing led to another, and then I, I was at the table, it's called the Family Centered Care Advisory Council, mm -hmm. FCCAC for short. Um, and that council is a very well-respected council at SickKids. And it's kind of a, a table where things come to for, for feedback, for input, for information. And you get a lot of families sitting at that table who are very engaged, very involved. And they're also at the same table with a lot of staff members in different disciplinary um, areas at the hospital. So all of a sudden you really are, you know, joining at the hips for how to make it better across the whole hospital instead of just one department focused on one child and one child's needs. Mm -hmm. So with that, I became the parent co-chair um, for that advisory council. And I've been doing that for four years now. So it's been, um, pretty important stuff. Yeah. You see a lot and you, you start understanding behind the scenes as well, you know, in front um, as an inpatient or at a clinic and why things are functioning and why things can't function certain ways and what changes can we make? 
Um, and it allows the, the advisors at that table to really stand up. And sometimes you're standing up to the hospital and sometimes you're standing up to and for the families in the hospital. It really varies on the topic, but it has been an absolute driving force for me, um, even through very, very dark days on how to make a difference. And, and even if it's simply making a difference for a select number of families for a select week, it's made a difference. Mm -hmm. So the goal is obviously bigger and, and stronger and more unity throughout, but it has just led to many, many committees, councils, um, boards, things like that, uh, speaking engagements and stuff to really highlight family-centered care and what it means for families living it. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about, guys. This is why I was like, I need to bring Julie on here because I think that's exactly the point of a lot of the work that I do is to try to bridge the gap between um, the medical community and the parents and try to help each other figure out what the other needs to understand and to move forward and to grow so that families feel better supported. Um, and so I'm just in awe of the work that you're doing and so grateful that you are doing that. Do you know if any other hospitals in your area have similar programs? Like, so I think a lot of hospitals have family advisors and well, at least they're starting to have family advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, in Ontario, there's a couple pediatric hospitals. And in fact, um, Chio is another hospital in, in Ontario and they are a pediatric hospital as well. And they have got a fantastic um, family advisory network. And there's been, you know, linking the two together in some areas. But again, it, it comes down to instead of just being siloed and, you know, this department links with this department at a hospital, I think the goal is to, to make it a much broader experience so that it is, you know, seen as something that is just embedded in care. Mm-hmm. And the clubfoot community would be no different than the complex care community with parents' needs, families' needs, the family seen as a unit, treated as a unit. And of course, the child, of course, your daughter and Owen both have their own unique experiences, but it does not change the fact that we as mothers or caregivers in general need support and families need support. And there needs to be tools and there needs to be guidance. Um, and the hospital staff, you know, can vary area to area, but the the consistent piece would be understanding family-centered care Mm -hmm. as a community. Mm -hmm. How would you define family-centered care? So for people who are, like, what (laughs) is it for you in layman's terms for the rest of us who are like, that sounds really great, but I'm not fully sure what that means. So in layman's terms, for me as a mom Mm -hmm. in the medical world, family-centered care is inclusive. It is keeping everyone at the forefront of the care for the child um, or whoever it may be. It means that my, my daughter's health is just as important as my son's health because the trauma for families and the trauma for other siblings is critical. It means that the trauma for myself and my husband and what we've experienced is addressed and is managed. It means that the, um, the commitment from the clinicians is the same as the, and the physicians is the same as the commitment from the parents. It is respect. It is communication. It is collaboration. It is, it is a unit. It is not, um, you know, people coming in, addressing a medical need with the patient X 
in bed. It's using their name. It's using the family's name. It's acknowledging that we're humans. And, and that means all of us. It doesn't just mean the caregivers. And it means, you know, the, the people taking care of our children, whether it's nurses or doctors, they're human too. And we have respect for them. So I'd say in layman's terms, it's, it's a unit and it is, it is care and compassion and communication and all those fun things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. One of the things in the podcast I remember that really resonated with me was when they said like, um, I can't remember whether it was you or Dr. Orkin who said it, but it was this idea that of course the child is going to be cared for. Of course, patient, the, the patient that's there for treatment is going to get care, but we need to start to expand what that care means for the entire family and for the, how that relates to the work that I do in the Clubfoot community is that so many of the parents that come in, you are responsible once you're done with the casting phase of treatment, you're solely responsible at home for that child's care. And you do the follow-up appointments, which are really for the child, right? But the reality is you really should be, those follow-up appointments can be dual. They can check on the correction of the child, right? Make sure that the treatment is going as according to plan, but also check in on the parents because in order for treatment to succeed, the parents need to succeed. And in order for them to succeed, they need to feel successful. They need to feel confident. They need to, they need people to check in with them. Cause there were so many times where I felt like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I have all the resources. I have help. I have support. I have the financial resources. And if I feel like I'm not going to make it, like, I don't know people who are in a more difficult situation than me can, are not feeling like I'm just going to fail and I'm going to give up. And that's probably the biggest thing. I think that, um, you know, for, for us, and for people with chronic illness or long-term illness, you're, you're nailing it right there because what happens when you go home? So in your situation, again, it's completely parallel and a great example of how the club for community and chronic illness works. You leave the hospital, you're still responsible for your child. You're still responsible. So in our case, we're responsible for running pumps and hooking up a line to his heart. And what happens if there's mismanagement of that or mismanagement of medications and what happens if a temperature, a temperature spikes, um, you know, that sits on you at home until you get the additional support. And uh, we've got some really, really great friends. I've got a couple of really amazing girlfriends um, who are part of the same community as us with their children. And you're broken. Like there's no, there's no denying the fact that there are days where you can't even talk to somebody because you are so done. And what happens there? And what, what support is in place? And how do the physicians know that these moms and dads or caregivers are done? What happens if they're really done? Where's the mental health support? Like what happens to the child if there's a mistake because they're exhausted and they went to bed? And I mean, it has happened to us. And I feel like my husband and I are, are pretty competent with our son's care. We've made mistakes. Thankfully, they haven't been catastrophic, but they could be. Mm-hmm. And 
it, it really takes the whole view to understand that. So, you know, when this is not in place and when the families are not looked at as a unit, it is incredibly broken. It is exhausting and it is a system that just simply can't function. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So much of that is like, just resonates so deeply with me because I do think overall, um, it just, we're just a, you just need the help of everybody. And there are those times as a parent where you are responsible. Like I, none of us, I never expected to be like the master of a medical device. Like I didn't go into this. And when we talked about earlier, um, it's the education piece of it, just the amount of knowledge that you have to take in. And then you have to apply that knowledge all the time through caring for older kids, for trying to work, for living any semblance of a life. So when you're like, well, do self-care, it's like, well, are you kidding? I'm barely, I'm barely surviving. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And I think the other side that it's kind of, again, lost in translation in, um, in the greater world for people that are not part of the medical world is the additional support. So we, um, you know, right off the bat, we knew that we were not going to hand Zoe off to anybody else. Zoe was not going to be the child because she was the sibling that was going to go to someone else's house for a sleepover because we needed to tend to Owen. So we were a divide and conquer family. It was, if it's the hospital, I'm typically at the hospital. Brandon's typically at home with, um, with Zoe. And we knew that that was important to our family. But what people don't necessarily realize is how do you teach a babysitter? How do you teach a grandparent? How do you teach family members how to prime IV lines and set up pumps and monitor for, you know, septic episodes? How do you teach grandparents and family members to keep an eye on fluids leaking or a change in um, attitude for a kid that's usually pretty chill? Like, it's just not possible. So for the the caregivers that do have supports in place, that do have people in their corner doing that, I mean, that's a whole different ball game. We do not have that. We have nurses who um, come to our house and help support at night so we can sleep. And even that, it's very, very hard for me to let go of you know, priming those lines, because I know how important it is. If there's bubbles in there that goes into his heart, that can be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. You know, these are nurses who are legitimately part of our family now who see all of the, the details inside our home and who are caring for him, who I trust beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I trust them with, with our son. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that's what's helped us get through, but we're very fortunate to have that. Yeah. You know, we have really close friends who don't have that. And they've been doing this for 10, 12, 13 years. And survival is, is at the forefront now. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It translates into, I say, you're just trying to survive. You're not thriving. No. Just every day is, let's just survive through the day and not anything beyond that. And I think that's part of it's, I've been more sensitive to that than I ever was before, because for so long, it was like, you know, you get all these messages as a mom, like you have to take care of yourself. You have to put yourself first. If you put yourself first, your whole family, but it's like, (laughs) right. But that only works if they're actually 
if my family can actually, my child can actually survive without me. And in so many cases, that's not the case. And it's so easy for outsiders to come in and think that's possible, right? Well, that, and it's also really, really disturbing as Mm -hmm. a family because all of a sudden, you know, you're saying no to friends invites, you're saying no to family functions, you're saying no to all of these things that you would love more than anything to be at. You would love to bring your kids to those extra birthday parties, but when they're at the same time as something that needs to be done, care, medications, hooking up, unhooking, or if you know that it's a large group of people where someone could be sick and that could translate into an illness and then a hospitalization, you're, you're not even batting an eyelash when you say no. Mm-hmm. And then that disassociates you from friend groups. It, it changes your relationships with family. It gives a lot of resentment into what life you're living right now. Your, your whole being changes and your whole being just diminishes in so many ways. Um, and that's not seen by outside people, you know, <laughs> that's, that's understood by people living it and breathing it. Mm-hmm. So I think it actually is kind of a great segue for me to talk about, you know, how Dr. Orkin and I started mm-hmm. with the additional support. Yeah. Uh, and it stemmed from her being in our hospital room every single day, checking mm-hmm. on Owen. And I think she even said, or I said, she's checking on me too, because she was like, that was mm-hmm. a very real and very raw time for, for Brandon and I understanding what life was going to look like. And I had to leave my job and we still had a daughter at home who, you know, I wouldn't see Monday to Friday. He wouldn't see on weekends. Um, and so things got pretty rocky for me and things were pretty, pretty hard from a mental health perspective. So she was the reason that I went across the street to start getting support. It was, I would never say force, but highly Mm -hmm. recommended that, um, that that begin. And Mm -hmm. it resulted obviously in me understanding that it was necessary and that it had to be a core part of my week, um, for survival mode, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, it's again, comes back to the unit and it comes back to having people in your corner and having physicians understand in those moments that it's not just about Owen in this case, Mm -hmm. it's about, uh, a mom who is a human who mm-hmm. is trying her absolute best to simply stay alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's about being seen like Dr. Uh, Orkin saw you. Absolutely. And not just, you know, a person in the room, but like as an actual human. And she absolutely. knew that in order for this to, to work, you had to be, you had to work. Right. And so her seeing, I just think there's such a big part of just being seen of having a witness and then having somebody witness what's happening with you and say, Hey, I see what you're going through. Let's get you some help. Right. Let's help. Oh, for sure. And I, the other really, really important thing that's never talked about is Mm -hmm. I recognize that I have extreme privilege in this scenario and to have somebody doing that, but there's, it's it's such an inequitable situation because you think about um, families whose English isn't their first language and they Mm -hmm. don't have somebody there to truly understand them. Or you think about um, different family dynamics where 
parents and caregivers are not bedside and, and maybe they're at work and maybe they're with their family because they have to be, um, and they can't bring uh, multiple children into the hospital. There's so, so, so many different scenarios that have resulted in the fact that this is not equitable for everybody. This is not the norm. And how do we get there? How do we help those families with respite and support and funding and the things that maybe could be managed for them with somebody else at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And I think, I think that's a good segue into how do you think that we can start to triage parents and not just see, you know, the patient that's in front of you, but like, how do, how do we even start doing that? How, how do you think that plays out? Yeah, I think that um, having family advisors is a, is a really good start. Having families who live and breathe, whatever department division, whatever you want to call it, yeah. and having them at the table with decision makers and with staff members is a very, very um, beneficial start because what that does is it opens up the perspective. And when decisions are being made in terms of clinics and visits, it gives the perspective of what's very hard for families, what's manageable for families, what's really helpful for families. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it just opens conversation and it lets two different people looking at two different things come together. So I think that's, that's a big start. And that's something that the, the hospital for sick children for at sick kids, they are really working on doing, they're really working on having an advisor at every table. Mm-hmm. So I know that part of um, my role and part of the role of the staff members who I kind of um, work with really closely, it's critical. So every time there's a new committee open, do they have family advisors on there? Because that family voice really matters. Mm -hmm. And then it comes down to also the care teams. I think the care teams um, are doing a really, really great job in a lot of places. And I think it's now starting to get some traction on including the family's perspective in all aspects of care. So, you know, an example of something new that's starting for a department that we work with, they're sending out a family survey before a clinic appointment, and they're asking the family to identify what the needs are that they want to discuss and and who do they want at that visit with them? Is there somebody else from the care team that they'd like to invite that they can help get them there? Um, And what it does, it just puts the the um, control back into the family to say, you know what, we actually, for our instance, we don't really care about his weight this month. Mm -hmm. What we care about is our mental health. What we care about is having support and help online for A, B, or C. Mm -hmm. Um, And it changes the dynamic of, of what care really means and who it means it for, or who means it, who it means for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, Exactly what we're talking about with the pediatric, with the team approach. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I try. I've tried to step into my own role as like, whoa, like I am a huge team member here, if not the most important team member, right? And I had never felt that way before. And I think that talking about that team approach and including where you're not going into an appointment thinking the doctor's just going to tell you things 
It's about a conversation. This is what I'm dealing with at home. These are the support things that I need right now. And then the doctor hearing you and going through that. So I think that's such a great, that's such a great idea, that survey aspect. And it helps parents kind of use their voice in a non-confront for the non-confrontational people Absolutely. out there. <laughs> you know, who can kind of send in a survey and say, Hey, listen, this month, like in the clubfoot case, I'm worried about flexibility. I'd like the PT there, you know, or this month, my child's super struggling with the boots and bar. Could we have a child family specialist come in and speak with us too? And um, give us some ideas about how we're going to help our child adjust as they start to become older and exert their will. Um, And so I think that's such a great idea of being able to have the parents feel like they're active in the treatment team. Absolutely. And and that's the goal, right? Um, Could you imagine sending a six-year-old into a a clinic visit, the doctor saying, how are you? I'm fine. And not understanding what the last six weeks at home has looked like Mm -hmm. for the big picture. Like that's the dynamic here we're working with. You're not going to listen to a six-year-old say, I'm fine. When you know that there have been weeks of absolute horror happening with, you know, three different things. So it's, it's imperative. It's not up for debate in so many ways, but for the Mm non-confrontational, it's very hard. It's very, very hard to sit in a room and even think of a question to ask Mm -hmm. sometimes. And then you leave and you're feeling, oh man, I should have talked about this. And what about this? And what about that? But then you feel bad emailing, you feel bad calling. So you wait three more months. Can you imagine um, the difference it would be with a family Mm -hmm. sitting there and the doctor sitting down with you Mm -hmm. and then having a conversation and you're able to express all these things. I mean, it's just a, a major layer Mm -hmm. It would be a huge change in the dynamic because I know just from my own history of there were appointments where I just didn't say anything. I just went, I was like, yeah, I was good. No, I was, I mean, I wrote a book because I was struggling so much that I needed so much support that I didn't have. But when I went into that appointment, I was like, yeah, we're fine. Because in my head, she was okay. If her treatment was working, then it was fine. But the reality was I was not fine. And, um, I wasn't fine for months. And if, even if those surveys or something you come up with, like we're, I'm a question asker. So I list all my questions before every appointment. Um, And I think that's because my mom told me to do that when I was little. Like I also, I grew up with a chronic illness and which I still have, which is asthma. So I would, she would always be like, what questions do you have? What are you going to talk about? And so that was ingrained in me as a kid for my own care. Um, My mom was a really great role model for that for me. Um, She's also a pediatric nurse. So she was, I mean, she's a, a superstar, but I think even that you're, even with all the questions that I have in my list of things, I still don't. So maybe if I sent those questions ahead of time and said, Hey, as a prep for this appointment, these are the questions that I have just so that we make sure we hit all these. Absolutely. And I will say, 
I, I don't think you're the norm. I don't think you or I are the norm. I think so many families are put into situations they weren't expecting. They never expected um, to be in whatsoever. They had a new diagnosis. They just had a baby in the NICU, like all these different things, or the diagnosis isn't going as planned and there's problems. And the crisis that is felt day to day it doesn't allow people to, to go in prepared and it doesn't allow people to be in a room and in a setting where they even feel remotely um, prepared to ask a question. Mm-hmm. So you think about that and you think about the, the draining that goes on within the caregivers on, I didn't ask that month. I forgot this. I did this wrong. Was it my fault? Um, am, am I doing something wrong? Is, is this ever going to change? Will this be better? It's just a ripple effect of negativity and that results in poor physical health, poor mental health, poor emotional health um, of the caregivers and the family members and the siblings. Like I, I always dwell on the siblings because I feel like they are just totally completely forgotten and everything. Um, but man, like it's, it's critical. Yep. I mean, I, I actually just published a, I, my eldest did a podcast with me about what it's like to be a clubfoot sister. And so that just went live today, actually. And it just, because I I firmly believe in that too. It's, it's not just even it's family centered. It's a family system. It's not just parents. It's like you said, grandparents can't be involved in the way they want to be. You can't because they don't feel confident to be able to provide the care. And if, I mean, like I said, my mom's a pediatric nurse and I still was like, I don't know if I can have you put on this medical device. You know what I'm saying? It's just yeah. that piece of, um, it extenuates. So from just your concentric circle out yeah. and it impacts so much of your life and, um, your other kids, which are just as important to you. And just a part of just as big a part of you and your family as your child that has a medical complexity and, but they get a lot of the time, you know, they need help too. And how do we help them while we're so overwhelmed and so exhausted? And so as humans, just trying to make it through, how do we like help our other kids too? It's just so holistic. Yeah. And you think for so long that they're okay. And you think Mm -hmm. they're posting and they're, and I mean, we're so fortunate that we have a really incredible you know, older sister to Owen, Mm -hmm. uh, there are times where that trauma comes out and it is so real and it is, it is just gut-wrenching as a mom to hear the questions, you know, when she questions still to this day, is he going to die? Like, Mm -hmm. whoa, (laughs) you know, because those are, those were real conversations that you you don't think a two and three-year-old has any capability to, to process but when they're seven and eight and going on nine, they're processing things that you never expected to have conversations about. And then when you're actually implementing some therapy and you're seeing, you know, the tears come out about a little worry that you would find so little that is driving them. It's, yep. it's, yeah. Again, a huge reason why from the beginning, family-centered care and that communication and that collaboration with everyone involved is so important. Mm-hmm. And not having a sibling leave the room during a procedure may be the right thing to do, or having a sibling leave the room during a procedure may be the wrong thing to do. Like it, it has to be the family's you know, decision and motive on, on what's going on. 
because there's times where Zoe will talk about, remember when you had to shut the door doing a sterile procedure and it's like, well, yeah, like, of course it was, had to be sterile. She'll mask up, she'll put gloves on and she'll sit there and watch and help. And so now we recognize that shutting that door for a sterile procedure is simply not, not even, we'll never do it again. She is an active player in her brother's care because she wants to be not because Mm -hmm. we thought she should be. Yeah. And every kid is different. So every experience is different. Every sibling, I mean, um, our cutie has two older sisters and the way that they interact with her is very different in what they're capable of their level and their experience of um, the trauma involved is different. And so then trying to adjust that to each of your children and yourself and your husband, we're all just processing everything differently. And we all have different needs and how are we addressing all of those needs? And it feels that on top of everything else feels just so overwhelming. And it, be, it gets pushed to the back worker because you're like, I just got to get through today. I just yeah. have to do this one more thing. I can't think about all big picture of everything that's happening in everybody else's life. Like you said, you're, you know, you assume your daughter's okay. And part of that I think is because I have to assume she's okay. I need her to be okay so that I can give my energy over here. But that doesn't mean that that doesn't have an impact on her. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do we get all of the team members from mission mm-hmm. nurse and physician and everybody to understand that um, the involvement needs to be wholesome? Yeah. That's the goal. That's yeah. what we work towards. So what do you think is it? is a takeaway for our clubfoot parents listening. What do you think we can take away from all the work? I mean, I think there's a lot of takeaways we've already discussed. I, you know what? We're just I think to choose one. Yeah, I think that the advocacy part, regardless of if you thrive in conflict or don't, the mm-hmm. advocacy part doesn't have to be, um, you know, putting your hand up and attending meetings. The advocacy part can be simply having a conversation with your physician and your team and understanding that, you know, ask sometimes, ask about having everybody involved. Um, I think the huge takeaway for me is advocacy is a huge spectrum. And I think that whether you're starting at the the very lowest level of it, or if you feel that you are a complete champion at the top, it doesn't matter. You're making an impact for either yourself, your family, your child, or the greater community. Um, and that's kind of the attitude I take with it. I could, I could sit and, and listen to somebody say something and provide one sentence of feedback or you can drive change. It doesn't matter. It's all making an impact. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's about feeling confident in, in starting somewhere. Yeah. I think that's great. And I think the last thing I would say, just even today's chat, I mean, look at two drastically different communities Mm -hmm. and we, we are so alike Mm -hmm. in, in what we experience, what we manage. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's the same for any other community. Yeah. It, it, there's no change there. That doesn't matter. You know, the, the caregiver community is a caregiver community. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we're all part of that bigger, larger caregiver community. Exactly. No matter what the diagnosis is, no matter what the complexity is. Yeah. So when you're feeling super alone, because that happens a lot and isolated and like, nobody knows what's happening. It's, um, even though it's slightly different, it, we're all 
dealing with so many similar things. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the other piece that I like about what you said with, if you're advocating, if you advocate just for your child, not even on a large schedule, a scale, right? That's going to, your advo- you advocating for your child is going to have ripple effects throughout, right? So even that one piece that you do that you think, oh, well, all I'm doing is just trying to make the right way for my child. Well, that's impacting all the other care professionals who are thinking, oh, maybe they didn't see things that way. Maybe they didn't. It's changing that aspect of it too. So those small things are just as important as the big things that we're all doing. The small things are the way you get to the big things. You're, you're completely on point. Um, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's again, helping shift the perspective of everyone. It's Mm -hmm. you opening up your mind to the perspective of people with advice, as well as you providing Mm -hmm. that feedback, um, perspectives that can be changed. Absolutely. So if people want to learn more about your work at sick kids, where should they go? So, I mean, I, um, I, I don't really have (laughs) a website or anything like that. It's more, you know, social media is a a platform for me to, to help promote things in a very, Mm -hmm. um, granular way for, for our family and what we do with sick kids. Um, but absolutely you can reach out that way and, and we can go from there. Okay, great. Perfect. Well, I want to just give a huge thank you, Julie, for being a guest today and for sharing. I just think this conversation and the work that you're doing is just so impactful. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I mean, it's amazing to, to have this experience as well for myself. Oh, well, it was just so incredible. I learned so much from you and I'm so grateful for your time and your willingness to just talk with us today. Obviously, you know, like I'm a super fan of yours. So, and your team and everything that you're doing, and it's all just so important. And I just appreciate it so much. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was great chatting. <laughs> It was too. So as always, thanks for listening today. And if you found this episode helpful, please share with anyone you think could benefit from it. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast. And if you need to get in contact with me, you can do through do so through my website at maureenhoff.com or my Instagram account at Clubfoot Chronicles Mom. Until next time. <laughs>